Hello, hello, and welcome to the Love Doctor Podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'll be answering your questions about birth control, barrier methods, and sexual preferences, and how stoked I am that shows like Sex Explained exist. I'll also be sharing my interview with Dr. Kenny Wilson, and we'll be talking about the latest birth control options available in Canada and how your vulva is probably way more normal than you think. But first, today in sex. Living in British Columbia, I gotta be honest that I feel super fortunate. Our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, has done an amazing job of keeping people calm and safe during the pandemic, and despite recent rises in cases... Thanks to Canada parties at the beginning of July, BC really is one of the best places to be right now in terms of health and safety. And last week, I found another reason to be a proud British Columbian. The BC Centre for Disease Control made an announcement about safe sex during COVID-19, and you better believe that glory holes was among one of their recommendations. Glory holes are when there is a hole literally cut into a wall, and folks, normally folks with penises, can stick their genitals through them to have anonymous sex with a person on the other side of the wall. That can be vaginal sex, anal sex, oral sex, you name it. But the reason that it's on the approval list is that it's only bodily contact and not our mouths. So if we speak too moistly, we can spread COVID-19. So there are some amazing diagrams of folks engaging in glory hole sex while wearing masks and having a wall in between them, because these are the times we live in, folks. The best part of the article is that glory holes are, and I quote, just a tip and not a hard rule. And you know that whoever wrote that, oh, they had way too much fun putting that in. Some other advice is to be creative with sexual positions that allow sexual contact while preventing close face-to-face contact, and they recommend, again, taking your desires into your own hands. Whoever wrote this is a genius. I love it. Now, what I really love is that our healthcare providers are recognizing that sexual expression is part of our overall health, and if you want folks to stay safe during COVID-19, you have to give them some alternatives to get their rocks off especially because this pandemic isn't going away anytime soon, finding ways for people to connect while still staying safe. Of course, there is still always a risk between STIs or COVID, but it's an important part of bringing sexuality into more mainstream discussions. Needless to say, I'm stoked. And now, let's get to your questions. Hi, Leah. First of all, I'd like to say I really love the podcast, and I have multiple questions. The first one is maybe not so much a question, more than a request, maybe. To have someone on the show that could talk about birth control. Because, for example, uh, the new documentary on Netflix, Sex Explained, talked about the birth control so highly. And there's not much information about it online. Like, we know it's a non-hormonal one, but... It's not really tested much outside of India, not available. So I just like like to know like sex educators' opinions on it to see if it might get tested and maybe get approved in the future for us to have like at least the possibility of using it instead of hormonal birth control. One more question. So what is your opinion on having surgery on your labia? Because I know it's become quite common and also for people that are quite young. And also what I've heard from different stories is that quite a lot of the times it's done because doctors have made people feel uncomfortable about their bodies. 
And I would be interested to know about your opinion and if something has changed in that type of field or anything like that. Thank you. The tough thing about birth control and other contraceptives is that the accessibility of them depends a lot on where you live. For example, here in Canada, we only recently approved Nexplanon, which is a hormonal birth control option that is good for three years and is inserted in the upper arm. I actually get into this and other birth control options in my interview later in the show with Dr. Wilson, but I'll just say a few things now about birth control and barrier methods. First, I use the term barrier methods because it's more inclusive of various types of safe sex methods. Instead of just birth control, which assumes that the sex people are having can result in procreation, there are a lot of different types of sex that can use a wide variety of methods, such as external condoms, internal condoms, diaphragms, hormonal contraceptives, vaginal rings, dental dams. Well, I mean dental dams. Most people don't really use them. But there are also behavioral methods, such as withdrawal or removing the penis before ejaculating, uh, as well as fertility awareness, where you can track your cycle and plan sex around the times that you're not ovulating. Now, to check out more on each of these options, I've left a link to the Island Sexual Health Society, whom I've worked with for the past four years. I also have a U.S.-based resource that has great information and helps folks locate the closest sexual health clinic to you. Now, second, Sex Explained is such a great resource. I binge-watched it as soon as it came out, and I actually went back and re-watched the specific episode you mentioned, Caller, about birth control methods. They talk about a wide variety of methods, such as shots, pills, IUDs, etc., and a lot of them rely on hormones that alter estrogen and progesterone production so that your body thinks it's already pregnant and doesn't release further eggs in folks with vulvas and uteruses. Now, from my own experience, I have tried a variety of methods, and I'll just give you a brief breakdown of how those worked, or some of them didn't work, for me. The hard thing about different methods is that it is a very personal decision and each of our bodies are going to react in different ways. For myself, I tried Depo-Provera starting when I was 16 and that is a shot that you get in your arm once every three months. There are different types of birth control shots that can offer pregnancy protection from between 30 days and 14 weeks, but mine was three months or 12 weeks. That worked well for me because I didn't have to remember to take a pill every day and other than getting a shot, it seemed to be a good option. As I discovered once doing some research, the only birth control shot available in the U.S. currently is Depo-Provera, which is the one I tried, but there are more options available in Latin and Central America, Asia, Europe, and Africa. Now, as I read in the article, Three Types of Birth Control Shots, of course, which is linked in the episode description, it's that Depo-Provera has been FDA-approved to treat endometriosis, but there are side effects. There has been some rumors that Depo-Provera can lead to a higher risk of contracting HIV, but as my favorite Dr. Jen Gunter says, despite multiple studies, there are still some unknowns and uncertainty whether there is a true link or not. The World Health Organization still states that the benefits likely outweigh the risks, but this is information that folks who are at a higher risk for HIV may wish to consider. This all comes back to it being a personal decision which type of birth control or barrier method is going to work best for you, and that's really a conversation that you need to have with a doctor or healthcare provider. I'm going to share a bit more about my own experience with various types of birth control methods, and I hope that will help you call her in figuring out that it really is a journey. Now for me, the hormones and Depo-Provera really started affecting me, and I had irregular bleeding, I had mood swings, and my body just felt meh, just blech. Which, isn't that interesting that lowered libido is a side effect of these types of birth control? As they mentioned in Sex Explained, it has been over 60 years since we first created the birth control pill. So 
why is it still so confusing to figure out which type to use and how those side effects are going to affect you personally? Now, the one thing is that folks with uteruses and vulvas, our pain has often been minimized in the medical profession and expressions of pain and discomfort can too often be dismissed. All to say that diaper Rivera wasn't a good fit for me after all, so then I tried the pill. At the moment, I can't remember exactly which one, but that ended up being even worse. I had even more terrible mood swings. I felt not at all like myself. Now, this trial and error went on for about three years, and unfortunately, this is a story I hear from a lot of my friends and various folks, that it took them quite some time to find a birth control method that worked with their lifestyle and with their bodies. Now, on my own journey, life got a lot easier when I tried the hormonal IUD. There's also a copper IUD, which is non-hormonal, and the hormonal one, which I have, which is the Marina. I got it when I was 19, and it was a great solution. Uh, It's good for five years, and once it was in, I didn't have to worry about it. I then got a second hormonal IUD when I was 24, and that's the one that I currently have. Just a heads up, when I got my second IUD, I had really terrible, painful acne for about two years, which had never happened with my first IUD. Being me, I did a lot of research on it and actually found that a lot of folks with uteruses had experienced a similar thing with their second IUD, which for many happened to coincide with being in our mid to late 20s. Your body goes through almost a second puberty at this age. Hooray! Yay! And that meant painful acne, especially on my chin. Now, after two years of trying every natural method I could think of, charcoal soaps, different face scrubs, oils, no makeup, all natural makeup, anything under the sun, I finally went to the doctor and got a prescription for Tactupump Forte, which is a topical face cream that I apply every evening before I go to bed. I've been using it now for about two and a half years, and it has made a huge difference. The compromise that it took a while for my skin to adjust because it literally has peroxide in it, which means that if I put too much on, my skin would feel like it was burning. And then it made my skin really light sensitive, so I had to pair it with like 60 SPF, and especially in that first year. Now, since it was such a rigmarole for me trying to figure out what do I need to do for my skin, and now that I have a solution, I have to make sure that I'm not in the sun for too long and my face doesn't burn when I go to bed... Anyway, Levi and I decided to go to the doctor and see if there were any other options available. Levi even asked if there was anything that he could do or take, and the doctor basically laughed at us and said, condoms. Yes, condoms are definitely a legitimate choice, and they work for so many people, and something that is so helpful for protecting against STIs. Which, spoiler alert, coming in the next episode, STIs and you, but that was basically the only option. Now, while there are some promising new studies on a male or folks with penises birth control shots, they aren't yet available, and apparently they're really expensive. In clinical trials, they have shown to be reversible, non-hormonal, have few side effects, and can last up to 10 years. Now, as stated in the article that I read, three types of birth control shots, the high costs are stopping many developers from trying to create these new male methods, But I would also wager that it has to do with the fact that, yeah, we live in a patriarchal society, and we have a long history of manipulating folks with vulvas health and placing the responsibility on our bodies instead of folks with penises. But that's a whole other topic. So, what is the point of my long diatribe on my birth control journey? It's just to say that there are a lot of options out there, and hopefully that they are accessible to you where you live. I feel immensely fortunate to not only live in Canada, but also in a city that has a lot of resources. 
The journey to decide which option is best for you is a conversation that hopefully you can have with a knowledgeable healthcare provider who can offer you an array of options. Since I was 16, which was almost 13 years ago, a lot more options have become available, but the reality is that it's a bit of a trial and error game because we're never entirely certain how each option will affect us. I've put together some great resources that talk about the pros and cons of multiple different methods, so I hope that between these and my interview with Dr. Wilson, this will help you on your own journey, caller. And now to the second part of your question, caller, we're asking about labia surgery. So as you ask, caller, there seems to be a rise of getting surgery on your labia, otherwise known as labiaplasty. Caller, I am so glad that you bring this up, and this is another topic that Dr. Wilson and I cover in our interview later in this episode. I'll preface that conversation with the research that I found about labiaplasty. So in Canada, I found an article from CBC called Embodying Barbie, Cosmetic Gynecology on the Rise in Canada, and this is from about three years ago. Now, based on what this article says, you're right that there are more instances of these kinds of elective surgeries where folks feel the need to alter the shape and size of their labia. Apparently, some cosmetic surgeons say that it can help with confidence and sexual dysfunction, and in the U.S., it is actually the second fastest growing cosmetic procedure. It would be awful, as you suggest, caller, that medical professionals would make folks feel self-conscious about their labias and suggest cosmetic surgery to repair it. The great thing is, the doctor that we're talking to today, Dr. Wilson, yeah, she's not one of those healthcare providers. She's amazing and actually gives you the proper information about your labia. As you can tell from my tone, I think that a lot of people are profiting off of folks' insecurities, and I tend to agree with Dr. Todd from the CBC article, who asked us to reconsider normal. Dr. Todd is a Vancouver-based gynecologist who takes issue with cosmetic procedures like labiaplasty and vaginoplasty. She says that she regularly has patients ask her about altering their labia, and although they are of all ages, the majority of them are under 19. This seems especially troubling given how young these folks are and how sad it is that our society is still making us feel shameful about our bodies from such a young age. For the vast majority of folks, their labia is just fine. Unless it is seriously impeding your life, such as having trouble putting underwear on, it feels uncomfortable or painful, there really isn't much reason to change your labia. Just like the rest of our bodies, we all come in different shapes, sizes, and colors, so our labias reflect that diversity. Dr. Wilson mentioned the Labia Library, which is a great project out of Australia that seeks to destigmatize and normalize what labias actually look like. And there's also the UK's Great Wall of Vagina. So I've attached a link to these libraries so you can peruse to see just how unique and beautiful vulvas are. Thank you again, caller, for sending in such important questions. And I hope that some of this research and my conversation with Dr. Wilson will help you on your own journey. Now let's get to the next call. Hey, uh, Leah and Levi, big fan of your show. Um, I want to ask something about can or not your sexual habits of choice change? Uh, I'm currently 25 years old and I've been sexually active since I was like 14 or 15. Back then, I'm I'm like a huge sport guy. I spent long hours in all kinds of sports and guessing that the fact that my sexual activity is hugely affected by my physical activities I used to prefer like multiple sessions cramps or one or two days and uh, well uh, what I'm trying to say is that I had a great uh, stamina in sex but recently my sporting routine changed significantly when I started 
uh, working, uh, specifically when I turned for 24. And then recently, about a year back, I got attached to my ex, which leads us to try to live together and uh, in, a, in an apartment a few months in. I got to a point where sometimes I can't even reach uh, orgasm on even the first session of sex that we did and uh, I was I kind of concluded that maybe it's because I don't do sports as much as I did then I tried uh, working out more often of course I didn't expect that working out on a few days that my stamina and sex life would just come back but I tried a few months out and it just stays the same I like my sexual preferences then it kind of gives me confidence. I want to ask, is it like a psychological thing or do people's sexual uh, preferences can dramatically change? Thanks a lot for the positive contents, guys. Love you guys. Thank you for sending in your question, caller. First off, yeah, sexual preferences, desires, performance, all of these can definitely change over time. It's totally normal to experience these changes over time, and sometimes that's gradual, and sometimes it can happen a lot more suddenly. As you said, you've recently gone through a lifestyle change where you're spending more time sitting down, and that transition might be part of what's made that change in your preferences and ability to orgasm. Now, are you experiencing more stress now that you're working full-time? The stress of trying to keep up to modern life and juggling all of these responsibilities can be a total libido killer, and it makes it difficult to not only find the time to have sex, but also the mental space to be fully present in the moment. You also mentioned moving in with your partner, which can add stress to your relationship and your sexual expression. I think your question, it actually highlights both things that are happening simultaneously. Your physical lifestyle has changed, and your responsibilities and stresses have also changed. This is a reflection on your change psychologically, but also physically. So my best guess is that what you're experiencing is a combination of both. I think it's great that you've started making an effort to work out more since, as you said, it makes you feel more confident and probably more grounded in your own body. Of course, you won't work out once and it'll be solved, but I think making that a part of your routine, especially if that's what worked for you previously, would actually be a good way to regain that confidence. Also, there is definitely an instance of mental blocks that happens when it comes to orgasms. It can become that if you don't orgasm one time, then the next time there is added pressure to orgasm, which causes you more stress, makes you more self-conscious, and then makes it even harder to orgasm. And so this cycle repeats itself, so it gets harder and harder to orgasm because there's so much pressure put on this moment. It's a slow journey to get out of that cycle, but it can absolutely be done. It's how you frame it. If you are having sex, either solo, with a partner, or partners, then the emphasis should be on enjoying yourself and not on achieving orgasm as the ultimate goal. If you're feeling pleasure, giving and receiving pleasure, really tap into those feelings instead of thinking, oh, am I going to orgasm now? Will I orgasm? What will they think if I don't orgasm? It's all about creating an environment where it's safe for you to explore your pleasure without that pressure. It's definitely easier said than done, and it'll take time, especially talking to your partner or partners, as well as masturbating, to explore what feels good again and to reframe it, not around being able to orgasm, but how much pleasure can you feel in this moment. But since you're here for more than just my educated guesses, I did some research and this is what I found. There is a lot of research out there about the connection between physical activity and sexuality, especially for folks with penises. 
The main correlations are between exercise and high levels of testosterone, which can get folks more interested in sex and may increase desire. As I mentioned earlier, stress is also a factor where if we experience more stress, our bodies produce more of the hormone cortisol, which can decrease interest in sex. In one of the articles I read, they even claimed that for folks with penises, regular exercise appears to be a natural Viagra. Now, I've linked the articles in the episode description, but of course, these findings will change person to person and will all depend on your own lifestyle, body, and your sexual preferences. Now, if you continue having difficulty with orgasming and it's causing you stress, then I would really recommend talking to your doctor and see what they can suggest for you based on what would work for you and your body. I really hope that helps and thank you so much for sending in your question. And now I am really excited to share my interview with Dr. Penny Wilson. Dr. Wilson actually reached out to me on Twitter and we started talking about sexual health and podcasts and she was so generous with her time and with her knowledge and I really appreciate her being on the show. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed talking to her. So here it is. So today I'm really excited. We're talking to Dr. Penny Wilson. And so it's like GP obstetrics or how how do you introduce yourself, Penny? How do you normally do that? When I'm in Australia, I would typically say GP obstetrician. But Mm -hmm. here in Canada, it's easier to say family physician with maternity or maternity Mm. family physician or something like that. Or maternity and family physician or family and maternity physician. No. Any combination of those things is fine. <laughs> Sounds good. And actually, we got connected because you had messaged me on Twitter being like, hey, like if you want to have like a health professional to come on your show and, and you have experience in podcasting as well, it was great that, that Twitter was our way to connect and that we were both in Victoria. That was just really great that that platform was able to connect us. It's funny having like the same like doctor title and meaning something very, very different. Exactly. Right? So I think that was something that I'm still struggling with because I've I've only been a doctor of philosophy for two months now. And so it's just very interesting to like introduce myself. I'm like, hello, I'm Dr. Tidy. I'm like, ooh, (laughs) that sounds impressive, but... It's very official. (laughs) Yes, very official. You guys are the real doctors, you PhD people. I don't know. I don't know. I shouldn't say that. I I should own it. I'd be like, yes, we are doctorates of philosophy. Yes. So tell us a bit about like your interest. When we had first kind of chatted a, f- a few weeks ago and we were getting to know each other, I just thought it was great how your personal sense of wanting to share education was also shared with your professional interest. So just a brief introduction on what are you into? Yeah, so uh, as a, a family physician, I'm kind of into quality healthcare in general for the whole population but I have a few specific interests and and I have extra training in obstetrics and gynecology so I do a lot of pregnancy and and women's health type care and I also have a lot of interest in medical education which is uh, generally aimed towards other health professionals in terms of the projects that I've been involved with and the roles that I've done but it also involves a lot of patient education in in what I do in a day-to-day practice with my work. Um, So this this podcast that we're doing here kind of brings those two things together in terms of podcasts and education and and patient information and empowerment of the population. So we like that. (laughs) Like being able to take that education and actually have have it be accessible and to have folks be like, okay, so now that I have this knowledge, how am I going to use that in my own life? 
So Exactly, and it, it's just more efficient for me to put it on a podcast and then can have hundreds of people listen to it instead of me having to say it over and over to every <laughs> single person in my consulting room. <laughs> Is there like a specific phrase that you find yourself saying over and over to people when they come in to see you? Probably the most common thing would be, so I think you have a viral infection and uh, that predates COVID, thankfully. But, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, there's lots of little uh, sort of scripts that we have that we use a lot, I would say. Yeah, I think that's something that probably happens in like in any profession, though. You get used to saying the same sort of things. Like I find myself when I'm like talking about sexual health, because a lot of my focus has specifically been on older adults, but also looking at like intergenerationally, how do we talk about the experiences of youth and older adults and how a lot of those experiences are really similar and how we kind of negate their sexuality and sexual experiences. But I find myself saying like the same things again and again. And then when I'm writing a paper, I'm like, oh, did I already say that? There's only so many ways that you can talk about STI rates and give the numbers without it sounding the same every time. Right. But you also learn what communication is effective. Mm. So, you know, once once you have a, a thing that works and that people can understand and that gets the message across effectively, then, you know, why, why uh, reinvent the wheel every time? Absolutely. Well, I feel like maybe that's a difference between being a medical doctor and then being like, uh, academic because there's something about, oh, you said it this way and now I want you to theorize and pontificate and now say it this way. I'm like, why? Yes, if true. this way works and, and it's, I think that's something I have this, um, this love-hate thing with academia where I love the opportunities that it's afforded me and the amazing people I've been able to work with, but it's that accessibility piece and that's, I think, why this podcast exists and I think why we're interested in talking to each other because you just mm -hmm. see that separation between so much of the like research and knowledge that that people hold but in not actually reaching people i was at a conference last year about sexuality and typically it takes about 17 years between a study or research being done and before that actually turns into like common knowledge and practice like mm. 17 years like it's obsolete by then yeah, and you know, you were mentioning that we uh, we connected over Twitter, and and that's one of the reasons why I love Twitter in general is that it really helps to cut down that knowledge translation time, you know, because you can see the tweets coming from people who are releasing the research as it happens, and then kind of the thing that happens is people analyze that research immediately and kind of publish peer review in a post publication way, and it's yeah, it really just translates into the into the real world so much quicker getting it into the uh medical offices and hospitals is a little bit more of a step but mm. yeah that the time frame can be shortened for sure absolutely well i'm thinking about like that knowledge translation i have been really enjoying reading the vagina bible by dr jen gunter and i wonder like have you read it what are your initial thoughts on it being released into the world. Yeah, I haven't read the whole thing. As you say, it's not really a cover to cover thing, but I have ducked in and out. And I think it's a really important book. Uh, it's, it's kind of the, the antidote to a lot of the misinformation that goes around, particularly around women's health. And I think that's, that's kind of her objective as well. You know, there's so many people out there willing to provide, um, input to women about what's wrong with them and how to fix it that's not necessarily based in science and that's mostly based in marketing and 
trying to fleece people of their hard-earned dollars um, that's not necessarily in their best interest. So, you know, I really think having information available to the public that's from reputable scientific sources is a good thing. What I find really interesting as well, and thinking about like contraception and and sexual health, is that she really breaks down like what are the pros and cons of each of them. But what's interesting now is that uh, just a few weeks ago, I think it was on May 25th, we actually had Nexplanon. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Nexplanon, right, which was approved in Canada. And I wonder if you just want to talk a little bit about, you will speak about it much more knowledgeably than I will on like what that is and why is it exciting that it's finally been approved in Canada? Yeah, you know, I've been in Canada for two years and when I first got here, I was astonished that it was not available here because it's widely used elsewhere in the world and has been for quite a long time. It is a progestin implant that uh, is inserted under the skin, usually in the upper arm. It is a highly effective contraception and it falls under the category of the LARCs, L-A-R-C, long-acting reversible contraceptives, which really are first-line contraceptives because they are much less likely to fail than something like a pill that you need to remember to take and you need to continue to take in the long term. So it's great that we have another LARC available in Canada. So our teenage patients who um, may not be sexually active as yet and uh, maybe sort of contemplating sexual activity or, uh, you know, people who don't want to have an invasive speculum examination or who may have anxiety around that, then it is a really good option um, because it's in the arm, it's very quick, it's very simple, it's less invasive, and it works really, really well. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, so for myself, I have an IUD, the Merino one, so the hormonal, and I have really in- quite enjoyed having it. But again, I'm someone who, I mean, it wasn't, I didn't enjoy the process of having it put in, but it wasn't a, a hugely traumatic experience for me. And that's something that people talk about that if you have experienced trauma, or if you're just very uncomfortable and don't want to have, like you said, it it is, it does feel quite invasive. Like, <laughs> I remember them having like pulling my cervix straight and being like, oh, wow, that is not a comfortable feeling. Um, and so having that option, uh, I think is just really great. And like you said, for younger patients as well to have something that's good. And I think next one is good for up to three years. Yes. Right. Which is a nice option as well. And I remember even when I got my first IUD almost 10 years ago, and I was 18 or 19 at the time. And I remember even then the doctors being like, well, it's normally for folks who have already had children and it still hadn't become quite as accessible for younger folks who wanted it as something where, well, your schedule, is especially, you know, as a youth and into a younger adult, it's such a sporadic thing. Mm. So having that option, I think, is really quite amazing. Yeah, yeah I have an IUD as well. I, I also haven't had children. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty painful. Um, it, it is... Um, you know, potentially a slightly more complicated insertion for people who haven't had vaginal delivery or been pregnant. But for most people, the IUD insertion is straightforward. But it is nice that there is this alternative that doesn't require any instrumentation through the cervix, which can be quite tight if it's never been dilated. 
Mm-hmm. What I f- like about it too, and I was kind of reading this Guardian article and uh, about Nexplanon and how, I mean, as of yet, we don't know what that cost is going to be like, but hopefully it can be covered under different like provincial mm. health and things like that. But what I found interesting is that in the article, they just mentioned it briefly about accessibility, especially between urban and rural areas. Right. And not having to worry about getting a prescription filled if you're on the pill or something like that, as opposed to something you can come in, you make an appointment and then you can leave. The other nice thing about the Nexplanon is that we can use it in a quick start method. Have you heard of that at all? No, I haven't. So uh, traditionally, uh, we would start a birth control during a woman's period uh, so that we would definitely know that they weren't pregnant and they could start their birth control straight away and uh, and whatever. But what happens if somebody comes in in their like second week of their menstrual cycle and we say, don't start this birth control until you get your next period, then a lot of people will go away and fall pregnant in that period of time or they just will forget or, you know, it won't happen in that time frame. So a quick start is where we start the birth control method immediately regardless of the timing of the cycle now you can do that for the birth control pill and for the nexplanon because it doesn't matter if you're accidentally pregnant at that time it's not going to cause any harm so generally patient comes in they say i want birth control we do a pregnancy test they're not it's negative we start their birth control either their nexplanon or their birth control pill and then in a couple of weeks' time, two or three weeks, we do another pregnancy test in case the first one was just too early. And if it turns out that they're pregnant and they've started the pill or they've had an explanon, we can either, you know, take it out and they continue the pregnancy or discuss options around um, management of that pregnancy if it's unwanted. So Yeah, definitely. When I know that was something that trying to time that with getting the IUD, and like you said, because it has to be inserted into the cervix, that you have to time that a bit better. And as someone who lives in a city, it was much easier for me to do that. But I also, so I grew up in Nanaimo, but now live in Victoria, but I don't have a, a G, my GP is in Nanaimo. So really I'm like, okay, so um, I need to schedule a time to see my doctor that I'm also going to be in Nanaimo. That's also going to line up with the end of my period. So it just, I don't know how I managed. I think when I got my second one, it wasn't as big of a deal because I was like, well, I don't really get a period very regularly anyway. So I was like, it's 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 going to be a bit painful. So I just scheduled it and, and got it done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about accessibility is that the insertion of the next plan on is less technical than the insertion of an IUD. So I suspect that more people, more providers will be doing it. That is certainly the case in Australia, where I'm from, that, uh, you know, sort of a lot of different family doctors will insert, we call it implant on there. It's it's a different um, brand name, but the same thing. Whereas far fewer people are comfortable inserting IUDs. So hopefully that will improve accessibility as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I think there's a lot of myth and kind of like horror stories that go around around IUDs and like being inserted improperly or, you know, getting, you know, being pregnant while you're on an IUD and then knowing and the complications around that. So I think in a lot of ways it can, as you said, it's that accessibility piece where it takes away that whole kind of uncomfortable situation. What mm. what I didn't enjoy is maybe not the right word about getting my ID inserted, but I felt, yeah, definitely wasn't like, oh, I should do that again. But I quite, 
as I think as a curious person, and then now, you know, because this is becoming my line of work, I really was interested in the process and what was actually happening. So it felt like I had a bit more control over my body and my choices. So in that, I felt quite empowered because I was like, okay, like this is going into my cervix. I'm very aware of what's happening in my body right now. And I think in a lot of ways, there's that kind of divide, especially for folks with vulvas and vaginas where we just don't listen or pay attention. And there's a lot of like shame in in that area. So in some ways it was like, okay, like, no, like I, I know the proper medical name for all of these things and for what's happening in my body right now. And so I just feel like a part of that is is the stigma, right? Is how do you actually talk to a healthcare provider? And I think for a lot of folks, I will say this for myself, like you don't want to sound you don't want to sound silly or like stupid. You don't want to diagnose yourself when you come in because I just feel like that's insulting the doctor as well. Because you're like, well, you actually went to medical school. I did not. I just Googled this. And but there is that shame of being like, okay, like, am I going to say the wrong thing? Or how do I bring this up? And so I wonder, like, what has been your experience of trying to kind of hold that space for people to feel comfortable and talking to you and asking questions, especially around sexual health, because that can be so vulnerable? So I think one thing to say up front is that uh, doctors are very accustomed to having personal conversations with patients and are skilled in helping to make them feel more comfortable. You know, we have people who share very intimate and personal things with us all the time. And it's part of our job is to uh, help them help them feel relaxed and to help them feel like they're in a safe place. Now, some people do that better than others. So it is important that, uh, that patients feel comfortable with their, uh, with their care providers. But, you know, I think just uh, my advice to people would be to treat it like an opportunity to have these discussions in a place where you sh- where you shouldn't be judged and where you can ask whatever questions however embarrassing and no matter what it is we've heard it all before we have um you know seen it all before and there's nothing really that can shock us so yeah mm-hmm. I hope that makes people feel feel more comfortable absolutely i like to think that too like if i go go to the doctor and i'm like oh no like I'm going to, you know, get either a pap test or something like that. I'm always like, oh, like, should I have washed? Should I I have like waxed or shaved? And I always remind myself, I'm like, well, you know, they've seen it all. So I Mm -hmm. bet you this isn't actually that bad. So a lot of, you know, your some of probably some of my own like body shame, like, oh, no, like, should should there be hair there or not? And then and like you said, I think people forget that you're trained professionals and you do this every day. And I think mm-hmm. there's that 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 intimacy in those conversations that you have with your doctors that you forget that that probably is a part of the training. And like you said, of course, it depends on the person itself. But I can imagine that would be uh, frustrating as a doctor to not necessarily like having like patients who come in with their ideas of like, oh, this is what's wrong with me, but more so the people who are spreading misinformation about it, like you said, who are trying mm-hmm. to really just take people's money and sell them on different products Mm -hmm. to make their bodies smell better, look better, whichever. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you want to like speak to that a little bit about how do you make sure that you're finding a reliable source for your information? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I certainly don't mind if people have researched their symptom or condition before they come in. I think 
you know, we should be encouraging people to take ownership and, you know, autonomy over their health decisions. But you're right, it is it is difficult for, for the lay public to know whether their source that they're looking at is reliable or not. And that's part of our job is to educate people on, you know, what's a reliable source, what is something that is trying to scam you, what is just blatantly fake news. And that is becoming increasingly difficult in in the way that information spreads through social media and 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 how convincing some of the misinformation is but you know i think for people if they if they've found information online uh, and they speak to their uh, doctor about it have an open mind and be willing to have a conversation about what is and isn't useful information absolutely and i think that's something that i'm hoping to do with this show as well is that Every time I'm going to be citing different like uh, newspaper articles that I've read, academic articles that I've read, and and conversations that I have with folks like you, and so I'm I'm trying to come up with a way to have a resource that just has okay on this episode we talked about this. Here are the links to the actual like articles that I read, and I think that's been a part of my own training in in the academic world is how do you make sure that you know how to do the research and find the source that's actually reliable? You know, obviously, I'm very privileged to be able to have gone to university, A, for as long as I was there. I mean, this is going to be my first September in eight years that I haven't <laughs> gone to university. So I'm feeling a bit bereft. I'm like, what do I do? What do I do with myself? But I've signed up to... Um, Actually, I've just signed up for more schooling to do the um, sexual health educator training through Option Sexual Health here in BC. So I'm like, oh, I'll just be a student again because I know how to do that and I'll just yeah. keep going. It's the same with, uh, with doctors as well. We, we go to university and then specialist training for so many years that so often once you finish, it's like, oh, maybe I should do this diploma or maybe I'll do a master's or <laughs> just, <laughs> just, you know, permanent students really. Absolutely. There's something kind of addicting mm-hmm. about it, but I digress. But <laughs> there was one thing that I really want to talk about before when, when we had uh, initially chatted a few weeks ago, like getting to know each other. I loved how you described yourself as you're just an endlessly curious person. I think that mm-hmm. comes from also from being a student, but also someone who's just interested in how people relate to their health and specifically I think their sexual health as a field that's emerging that we're realizing there's a lot we have to unpack. And what I found interesting is that you talked about how a lot of your work has been looking at like older adults and looking at experiences of menopause as well. And I'm wondering what are some common misconceptions that you've really thought about and and worked on to try and try to mitigate? I think there's a lot of shame that goes along with menopause as well. Mm. Yeah, I hear from a lot of, uh, of people that I know, not necessarily within my work environment, but just in my general life, who when they get to that sort of middle age menopausal time, they feel like they disappear in society and become less visible. And I think, you know, so in some ways in the medical field, we're a little bit guilty of doing that as well. People come in with menopausal symptoms and uh, certainly, you know, we we have a lot to offer in terms of helping to manage those symptoms. But we're not always, you know, as good as we could be about asking more in-depth questions about the person and their experience of life. And that, of course, includes sexuality and, and sexual experience. So I think that is something that I'm trying to do more. 
I hope my colleagues do as well. But, you know, that is super important, as you say. So there's a couple of things, I guess, in terms of that time of life that affect sexuality. And of course, a lot of it is social stuff, like parents are getting older and going into nursing homes and becoming unwell. Children are teenagers who are causing havoc. Responsibilities at work may be great. There may be uh, issues around um, transitioning towards retirement planning. And, and so there's a lot of stuff that comes up in, in people's lives around that time that can totally mess up with their relationships and, and their sleep and their their cognitive function and, and all of those things. And, and then, of course, there's the, the physical side of things as well in terms of decreased estrogen levels leading to uh, vaginal dryness and general hormonal changes that do affect the way that people experience their bodies and experience their sexuality as well. Mm -hmm. What I find helpful is that the information that you're getting from patients about that time in their life, it really is matching what the research is telling. So a lot of the research that I looked at is is about those factors, is how those social factors, if there's so many things shifting and changing in your life, and that feeling invisible. I think for, for a long time, it's especially like young female bodies that are like sexualized and idolized. Mm -hmm. And then when that transitions, as you get older, because, you know, we have a pretty ageist society in general, as that shifts, then there's this, that this feeling of disappearing. And for, and for some folks that can be really empowering and freeing. So they're like, oh, like I'm, I'm out of the spotlight and I get to just be a bit more free. And sometimes that translates into being more free in their sexual expression as well. But a lot of times, again, because we live in a, in a pretty misogynistic society as well, and a patriarchal society that we see how it can also translate into feeling like, oh, well, I'm no longer a sexual being, or I no longer see myself as being sexually like vital or anything before, because you're shifting, you know, you're going through the change through menopause. So there's, I think there's just a lot of there's a lot of things wrapped up in that time of life. And like you said, indicates social perceptions. That, and I think a lot of time we forget that those have a huge impact on our health and well-being. You know, we, we live, we are social creatures who live in a social context. So how can you separate those things? Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right when you say that um, people have very different experiences of, of getting older and, and some people totally embrace it and and, you know, I think a lot of people feel like they become more of their real selves as they get older and have have more wisdom and uh, and they know it themselves better. And and some people have other experiences and, and more negative experiences. Um, and it's a bit the same with the sexuality as well. Some some people, you know, it becomes less important and some people it's still very important. So, you know, we, we should always focus on that individual person's desire and their values, you know, with curious uh, inquiry rather than, I guess, putting blanket assumptions onto people. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's so heartening to hear that from someone in the medical profession as well. To be like, of course, you you're not you know you're not treating symptoms; you're treating a person, and you're helping them in that process. And like all of that context around their life, and obviously you have limited time though with each person, understandably. But being able to hold that context in mind while you're thinking about kind of their their overall health and experience of that, I think is really helpful to to think about. What I'm wondering too is, as a doctor, have you found it 
especially about older adults, you know, sexual health or talking about sex, postmenopause, perimenopause during those times. Do you have you found a lot of resources to help you navigate those conversations? Or is this kind of your own learning that has informed that? It's a bit of both. Uh, you do get better at having conversations the more you do it. And also, you know, I've attended some extremely interesting conference talks about the topic and, and you know, done a lot of research in, into some of the menopause societies and the, and the guidelines that they're putting out, which are, which are pretty good. Um, but again, people need to be a bit careful about what's, what's true and, and what's uh, not in terms of menopause literature that you can get online. But yeah, there's, there is actually a lot of, a lot of resources and a lot of research out there that, that people can find and that medical professionals can find if, if they look. Mm-hmm. I have a, a question for you, and then I'll kind of open it up if there's anything else to talk about. But if you were to have kind of one key takeaway, let's just assume I'm your patient. What's kind of this bit of information, especially for folks with vulvas and vaginas and uteruses, what information do you just wish they knew? I don't know if that's probably hard, like one succinct thing, because it's all so linked yeah. together. But kind of that one thing, like if you knew this one thing, your job would be easier and your life would be much easier. Yeah, and look, uh, particularly around uh, gynecology, it's it's so much harder because people don't talk about it because there is that kind of stigma. So I wish that people knew what was normal and on the flip side, people knew what was not normal. So I can give you a couple of examples there. So, so one thing I wish that people knew was normal would be, for example, um, the normal variation of the external genitalia. Um, so, you know, in every developed country, there's this ridiculous increase in, in folks getting labioplasties and, and getting surgeons to chop off part of their uh, external genitals because they have not been exposed to what normal vulvas look like. So they uh, have this warped sense of normality that's from, you know, pornography and, and kind of popular culture. And that can then end up causing so much damage and, and medical harm. Now, that's not to say that it's not indicated ever. There are certainly some people who have uh, problematic symptoms from their from their anatomy that, that can be improved. But for the vast majority of people, if it's just about aesthetics, it's really a, a harmful uh, pattern. So there are some cool uh, things happening in the art world, which I'm sure you, you, you may have heard of, with, uh, with artists looking at um, labial anatomy in their sculptures or their, um, their photography exhibitions, which has been a really cool um, starting point for conversations. Um, and there's also this really cool thing from Australia called the labia, labia library. That's, that's one thing. Don't, uh, don't get your labia chopped off because you think it looks funny. Everyone looks funny. It's all normal. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then on the flip side, what I wish people knew was not normal is things like period pain, horrendous period pain that so many people suffer through, you know, causing people to take days off school, days off work. And particularly in uh, younger patients, there are things that we can do from a medical perspective to improve that. And so I really hope that people don't suffer for years and years without uh, getting attention. And, and we know that things like endometriosis have a very long lag time to diagnosis because it is, 
you know, it is difficult to diagnose clinically, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be trying our damnedest to uh, help people have quality of life and uh, and uh, chase down the answers that they need to, uh, you know, reduce suffering. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I um, there's a, there's a great podcast I listen to called the Reg Podcast, and I actually mm-hmm. had interviewed them a few weeks ago. And I was listening to one of their episodes, and it was about endometriosis. And I think for this one woman that they had interviewed, I think it took her about four or five years of going to doctors and figuring out mm-hmm. exactly what that was. And like you said, there's that lag time in getting a full diagnosis because. There's so much complex anatomy that's happening in quite a small area that the signals that we're getting around pain and everything else could be any number of things. So, I mean, I feel for doctors in that situation as well, because our bodies are so complex and sometimes they just do weird things. And I can imagine how frustrating that would be to be like, I don't know what's wrong or I'm, but like you said, trying your damnedest to try and figure that out. And like you said, that quality of life piece is so huge because if this is happening every month and you're missing, you know, multiple days of school or work or whichever, you think about that long-term impact on your quality of life, but then also, you know, for folks like that gender wage gap, like that's something that's also increasing. And so it just compounds over time. The medical system historically is is not immune from patriarchal attitudes so you know we have as a as a sector been guilty of dismissing women's pain and um, minimizing those female complaints but i think we're doing better and i think we still need to continue to do better and that's that's part of the piece Mm -hmm. absolutely i think that's excellent i feel like that was like a perfect succinct way of we're getting better there's still more to do, mm-hmm. but you're sounding very inspirational, Penny. <laughs> Dr. Wilson's like, we're going to try our damnedest and you know what? We'll get there. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. Like I just, you have such an incredible wealth of knowledge that I just so appreciate being able to talk to you about it. And the fact that you, you know, talk to so many different patients and have heard so many stories like that is not only do you have the schooling and the experience, but then like every day you're adding to that, you're layering into that because it's those lived experiences and those stories you actually hear from people that that I think, and I've just found it even in my own work in a completely different setting, has helped me be a better facilitator, a better educator, practitioner, because you can now speak from hearing these multiple stories. So hopefully that's what that's what the hope of this podcast is too, is if we can get more people listening, then having these conversations will just get easier and easier. Great. Sounds amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today and listening to the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode of The Love Doctor, I'll be talking to my neighbor from the South, Jackie Hoshing, about sex education in the USA versus Canada. I'll also be talking about sexually transmitted infections, so if you have questions that you want to ask, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com. You can also check me out on Instagram or Twitter, and if you're liking what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review. Till then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.